As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Scott was standing beside the backhoe and he called me over and I could see the look on his face that uh yeah, there was something of significance. And then when I went over and um saw the ground that had been dug up. I'd, I'd seen enough bodies buried to realise that it was a uh, human skeleton. Gary Jubelin is arguably Australia's highest profile former detective right now. It's a spot usually reserved for former detectives on trial or former detectives becoming charismatic media commentators. But I'm pretty sure this is the first time one man has been both at once. Jubilin worked in major homicide for decades, investigating dozens and dozens of murders. Some investigations had satisfactory outcomes and some didn't, 
But it's the disappearance of four-year-old William Tyrrell that brought his brilliant career undone. He was suddenly and sensationally stood down as the lead investigator on that case in May 2019. He resigned from New South Wales Police a couple of days later and was then charged with four counts of unlawfully recording conversations with the Tyrrell family's neighbour, Paul Savage, without a warrant. The public was outraged. In fact, over 17,000 people signed a Change.org petition demanding the New South Wales DPP drop all charges against Gary Jubilant. The petition itself was started by the mother of a homicide victim. But the case went ahead and Jubilant was found guilty on April 6, 2020 and fined $10,000. He joined News Corp as an investigative journalist and he released a podcast called I Catch Killers. Then his book of the same name hit the shelves. I Catch Killers is one of the all-time great titles, obviously, but in a lot of ways, I reckon it sells Gary Jubilant a bit short because he's way more generous than that. The podcast isn't even about him catching killers at all. It's a show in which he interviews other coppers about their careers and their accomplishments. And the book is focused at all times on the contributions other people have made to his life and his work and on the victims of the crimes he's worked on and their families. So I wasn't surprised to see so many of those family members gathered at Sydney's Downing Centre Courts in support of Gary Jubilant during his trial. Two of our former guests, Mark and Faye Leveson, led the statements to the media outside. This is from Faye and I regarding today's situation. We must start by saying what loyal supporters we are of decent, hard-working police officers and not ones who are driven by ambition and petty jealousies. That is why we stand here today, with our support right behind Gary Jubilant, a former police officer who will work hard, push the boundaries, think outside the square and, very importantly, consider the victims of crime always. Gary knew how to use all the resources at his disposal, including the media. We feel that his success and high profile have embarrassed and upset a number of overambitious superiors who placed their own careers before the task they were sworn to do. Gary is not just a huge loss to the New South Wales Police Force, but far more importantly to the victims with whom he interacts and also the people of New South Wales. All of you in front of us now have massively more knowledge on police investigations and court matters than we do. We have got a question for you all. Do any of you here know if the current head of homicide and Gary's former boss has ever been involved in an active murder investigation? I've gone to Google and can find nothing. Mark and Faye Leveson joined us in episode 76 of Australian True Crime called The Unsatisfactory Case of Matthew Leveson. Matthew was their 20-year-old son who disappeared in 2007 after leaving a Sydney nightclub. At 3.20am, Matthew texted a friend about an argument he was having with his live-in partner, Michael Atkins, who was 45 years old at the time. Approximately nine hours later, CCTV cameras captured Michael Atkins at Bunnings, buying a mattock and duct tape. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next.
We'll check in with Mark and Faye Levison a bit later in the show. But first, we hear from Gary Jubilant, who entered their lives six years after their son Matthew vanished, four years after his former boyfriend Michael Atkins had been acquitted of his murder. But at that stage, Mark and Faye still had no idea where their son's remains were and they were very frustrated with New South Wales police. I know they wanted Gary on their case, but I wondered when Gary first became aware of them. I think I first became aware of it, and uh, I was in. I've been in homicide that long. Like when I say become aware of it, I'm you know, familiar with a lot of cases that I haven't worked on that other people were working on. I had a, a vague recollection about that particular case when it, when it occurred, but I think around 2013, after um, Michael Atkins was acquitted of the murder of Matthew Levison, Mark and Faye came into. Um, the homicide office to meet with the commander and I was invited into the meeting on the basis that I was familiar with the double jeopardy legislation because of my work on the Barrowville investigation and they wanted the investigation to be re-looked at. Now, in New South Wales, if someone had been acquitted of murder up until the legislation was changed, there was nothing you could do. It was um, that they literally got away with murder. But when the double jeopardy legislation came in, if there was fresh and compelling evidence available, that created the opportunity that an investigation could be looked at again. So Mark and Faye, the first time I met Mark and Faye was in the conference room at the homicide office where they came in and uh, sat down with uh, Mick Willing. I think there was another inspector from Unsolved Homicide and looking at the possibility of reinvestigating Matt's disappearance. I then I wasn't involved in it. I was privy to the meeting because of my expertise in the double jeopardy legislation and offered some input there. Then um, I took some time off from the uh, police. I I lived over in Western Australia for 12 months and uh, just took some long service leave and whatnot. When I got back, the investigation hadn't progressed and uh, I had come back over strength to the unsolved homicide squad and I I had a look at the brief and I was a little bit frustrated that things hadn't been done so I picked it up and uh, started working with it with a couple of uh, uh, local area command detectives and one from unsolved homicide. What do you mean when you say things hadn't been done? What did you think was lacking? Oh, it, it it hadn't been progressed at all. The investigation from when I was speaking to the family 12 months before no one had picked it up and uh, you know I don't know the reason because as I said I, I was off for for 12 months I'm assuming it was a uh, workload of uh, other officers but no one had actually uh, had a look at this potentially fresh and compelling evidence so I got myself involved in it that way. So Matt went missing in 07 Atkins was charged in 08 but acquitted already in yep. 09 yep. so it must have seemed to a lot of people as so though it was done and dusted. And as you say, because of the double jeopardy laws, there was an opportunity if there was fresh and compelling evidence. What was it? The information that we'd received that there was some uh, comments made on social media, on uh, Facebook, that appeared to be coming from Michael Atkins. And it was a private conversation that someone had uh, passed on to uh, police. We looked at it and uh, examined it, and it certainly had information that was very specific that uh, one would assume that only uh, Michael Atkins would be aware of. On that basis, uh, we followed up that information, which took us overseas at one stage, and then uh, we had someone come back into the country and we followed it up. And it brought it to a conclusion that it was, in fact, someone that was pretending to be uh, Michael Atkins had initiated the account. So that was 
that was devastating for us because the nature of the information, I, I said to Mark and Faye, Matt's parents, look, if this, if we can corroborate this, I think, in my opinion, this does constitute fresh and compelling evidence and I, I think there's a very real chance that we might be able to uh, get the matter back before the court. That wasn't offering up false hope. That was just giving them my opinion of, of the information. So we worked on that for about four months and then we thought we made progress. We thought we'd corroborated the evidence and then there was a little twist right at the end when we realised, and I'll call him a nut, and I think that's a apt way of describing him, uh, a nut had impersonated Michael Atkins and uh, created this false account, and um, we tracked him down. And I was devastated for Mark and Faye because uh, their hopes, whether real or imagined, had been lifted, the fact that we're looking at it. So we're then confronted with a situation. I had uh, two uh, local area detectives from uh, Miranda working on the investigation. One of them was uh, Scott Craddock, another one, uh, Damien. And I said to those guys, look, because we were devastated, I, I remember going around to Mark and Faye's place and saying, uh, I'm sorry, this information that we've been following up has come to a dead end and what we've got here is no, um, yeah, there's nothing further we can do on the investigation. With that, Mark and Faye were very emotional, understandably so, and uh, uh, that was anger, sadness, the full range of emotions. And uh, I walked out of that place feeling very, um, yeah, very down. And uh, I felt like I'd, I'd given them false hope and then taken it away from them. And uh, I I could feel their, their pain. And so I had a lot of things going on at work at the time. And I, I said to um, Scott Craddock, who, a great detective who eventually came and worked in homicide with me, I said, look, I can stir things up and we can see if we can progress this, but I haven't got the energy to um, battle this on my own. He wasn't at homicide at the time. I said, can you give me a commitment? Because they'll be doing this in addition to other investigations that we were working on. And he was 100% behind that. So on the back of that, I went and spoke to Mark and Faye and said, look, I don't know if this will progress it, but I have an idea here. What if we refer it to uh, the coroner? And uh, in the fact that the, the role of the coroner is determined um, manner and cause of death, at this stage, you've put your faith in the criminal court, being the uh, murder trial, and uh, a person was acquitted, so you don't know what happened to Matt. They then contacted, well, they sent a letter to the coroner. I met with the coroner. I believe it was the state coroner at the time was Michael Barnes. And uh, I put the proposal to him, could we hold an inquest? And uh, he said, look, it's unusual. And I, I said, well, the families have put their faith in the justice system and they still don't know what's happened to their son. Um, surely it's yeah appropriate that it goes to inquest. What was unusual about it? It's unusual when, when some, generally when someone's been acquitted of murder, that's the end of the, end of the investigation. What we were saying or, or, or what the family, and I, I'm articulating the, the family's view on this, was the fact that, they still have not got answers for what happened to their son. Their son disappeared. Someone was charged with murder and was acquitted, and they're still looking for answers. So usually a family's out of options once that's happened, are they? Yeah. It's rare that you go back to inquest after a murder trial, whether it leads to a conviction or acquittal. So it was sort of a, a, a new way of approaching it. On the back of that, the coroner was receptive to it, and then we started to prepare a brief of evidence, which involved 
myself and the team I was working with, uh, Damien, Scott and John, to uh, compile a brief of evidence to the coroner. And uh, then we presented that brief to the coroner. And then during the inquest, Michael Atkins was called as a witness and I discussed with Mark and Faye and also the Crown prosecutors on the best way to uh, approach it. And a what I would call a very novel approach that Michael Atkins was offered a Section 61 certificate. Now, a Section 61 certificate in layman's terms is if you get in the witness box at the coroner's court and let's say it's on the peripheral, someone gets in the witness box and says, I don't want to answer the questions because it'll incriminate myself. The Section 61 certificate gives a protection for that person that anything they say that is related to a criminal matter can't be used against them, if you understand what I mean. So, yeah. Um, Indemnity. So, um, yeah. In fact, this was the first time that he had ever testified in this matter, wasn't it? So this is 2016, I believe. So this is nine yeah, years yeah. after yep. Matt had been missing. Yeah. So 2016. So Michael Atkins and he had legal representation and uh, he was going to, uh, in the witness box, uh, anticipated that he would say he's not going to answer any questions, which is his right. Yeah, there there is a right there. It's not a criticism of him or his, his legal team by any uh, imagination is that uh, he's not prepared to uh, answer the questions on the grounds that it may incriminate him. And on the back of that, we've had in discussions with the uh, prosecutor and discussions with Mark and Faye Levison and, uh, and Matt's brothers on the possibility of offering Michael Atkins a Section 61 certificate. And how that came about, I was speaking to Mark and Faye and said, what do you hope to achieve from this inquest? And this is where it gets very raw and parents shouldn't have to make a decision like this, but what do you want to achieve? And they said, we want justice for Matt, which is tick, and uh, we want to recover his body, bearing in mind they, they hadn't found Matt's body for 10 years. And also that they had themselves been digging sometimes with their bare hands, hadn't they, in the bush oh. looking for their son's body? Yeah, now, look, that takes us on a, a different part, but I think it, it's probably appropriate at this point in time that to understand the pain and suffering that uh, not just Mark and Faye go through, but anyone that loses a loved one, they would go to the National Park down south of Sydney and just take a mattock and a, a shovel and search for Matt's remains. And, you know, I can't even fathom to think of the pain they must be going through on that. So, obviously... A loved one, they wanted to bring uh, bring Matt home. So putting to them, they, they said two things. They wanted uh, justice, and that means the person responsible for Matt's death put before the courts. Then they also wanted Matt's body recovered. In further conversations, I said, okay, let's break it down even further. If you could only achieve one, and they've said, we want Matt's body back. And then that's when we started having discussions about the possibility of giving indemnity to uh, Michael Atkins with the view of anything he says in the witness box can't be used against him. And that resulted in Michael Atkins speaking to, uh, to us, speaking to the police and showing us where he believed Matt's body was buried. Did you yourself take that drive with him? Yes, how it played out, and there was a lot of negotiations backwards and forwards, and quite rightly so, because it was a, a big decision and uh, there had to be agreements in place and his legal team certainly looked after his interests. But I sat down with him 
to interview him about it when it was decided that he would reveal what he knows about Matt's death. And uh, his indemnity was uh, subject to us recovering Matt's body. And uh, I think we finished interviewing him about two o'clock in the morning. And uh, then we drove with his legal team and myself and Scott Craddock, we drove in the police car down to the Royal National Park. And Mr Atkins identified the area where he believed that he had buried Matt. And uh, it was quite chilling walking around there at three o'clock in the morning and uh, with someone walking around in, in the bush trying to remember where he buried someone uh, 10 years before. What sort of conversation did you have in the car? Did he talk at all? Was he quiet in the car? He was quiet and it was certainly part of the, the strategy from the police point of view is that... Um, it was difficult for all, and I'm not. I'm not saying I've got sympathy for uh, Mr. Atkins, given what he he put Matt's family through. But it was important that there was an environment in which he felt comfortable that he could tell. So it was an awkward trip. It was an eerie trip, and it was certainly um, a strange situation that we all found ourselves in. Because by that stage, it was his contention, wasn't it, that Matt had died accidentally of an overdose, and that he had panicked and buried Matt's remains in that location. Yeah. That's the version of events that he provided during the course of when I interviewed him that night at his uh, solicitor's office. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. It was really hard going in that uh, Mark and Faye were down there with us the whole time watching. And, yeah, we we spent um, six weeks in total uh, digging up the, the National Park and it wasn't, and this might sound, sound strange, but it wasn't until the last hour of the last day of the search where I was actually speaking to Scott Craddock, my offsider, and our conversation went along the lines of, well, what do we do now? Like, we believe him, we think he's telling us the truth, but we have searched this 
not just this location, another location that there was a possibility given the, his recollection and uh, some significant things he'd identified. And we dug it up and then it came down to the, about the last hour and that's when um, Scott was standing beside the backhoe uh, that was digging and he called me over and I could see the look on his face that uh, there was something of significance. And then when I went over and saw the ground that had been dug up, I'd, I'd seen enough bodies buried to realise that it was a uh, human skeleton. And uh, I looked over at Mark and Faye and uh, it, it's still to this day, it's it's pretty raw. I looked over to them and I, I think they could tell on my face that uh, we had found that. Yeah, that's the way they describe it. They talk about seeing a fern, a large fern, and in fact, Mark saying to Faye, that would look great in our garden. Yeah. And yeah, and then the search was coming to an end and they were despondent. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yes, someone called you over and then they could tell yeah. from the look on your face. Yeah. Yeah, it was pre- pretty uh, chilling. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. Well, look, it was spending six weeks with the family Why you got police came in the ground digging up and uh, looking for uh, their son's remains. Uh, yeah, full credit to Mark and Faye to come through the whole um, whole process. But, yeah, it, it was tough. Yeah, but this is why they speak so highly of you, because you were the game changer. You were the person who, and, and that's what it takes so often when we're dealing with any kind of huge establishment like the police force. You need that one person to, to say, I'm going to take responsibility for this. I'm going to take you on board. I'm going to take your case. Yeah. And turn it around and you were that guy and and you and your team made it happen after 10 years of them feeling sort of left on their own. Yeah, uh, that's a uh, look, uh, I'm of the view and, yeah, some people might have differing views, but quite frankly, I don't care because this is my view on, on the way homicide should be approached. You need to take it personal. You need to get involved. You need to get invested. You need to understand the pain that the victims are going through. And, uh, you know, in an organisation, sometimes they don't want that type of thing. It's more of a statistical basis. But uh, I, and the advice I give any young police officer, and it doesn't have to be a homicide, any any crime, care for the victims, have empathy for the victims and uh, be passionate about what you do. And there's a, there's a fine line because it, it needs passion and perspective. Um, and, yeah, resources are limited. You can't... Um, waste resources or, or just keep banging your head up against a brick wall. But uh, if there's something that needs to be pursued, what I often say is, how would you like your family to be treated by police? And I, I think that's a good benchmark on uh, the way that police should approach things is treat the victims the way that you would expect your family to be treated. It is draining, though. It's a massive responsibility. I know retired homicide detectives in their 60s and 70s who are still phoned once a month by victims' families who don't have answers and don't have closure yet. Yeah. And you certainly left the force so suddenly. I'm sure you were in the middle of cases. Are you in the middle of things with families? Yeah. And uh, that, that's been my frustration and, and part of it was that... Uh, before I left the police, I wanted to do um, handovers and that mm. for, for a few investigations and uh, I wasn't given that opportunity and I don't know, I, I just, I can't understand the logic behind that. Like the offences that I was charged with and now convicted but subject to appeal, uh, and this is not diminishing the, the need to follow rules, regulations or whatever, but I'm not this corrupt cop <laughs> that's um, you know, just what shame that should have just been ripped from the police force because they can't contribute any, anything further. Professionalism should have come into play and put personal biases aside 
I should have been able to do handovers on the investigations that I was working on. And I still speak to the victims. I still speak to the victims and uh, they reach out to me. I help them and uh, advise them where I can, but obviously I'm outside of the cops. But it's not a big ask. You know, if, if a loved one's been murdered, what do you expect from the cops? <laughs> the cops have got to be invested in it. If they can't invest in it, they shouldn't be in homicide. That, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I know I'm not the first and I won't be the last person to express such deep disappointment at your being removed just because it's such a loss to victims and victims' families. I know other detectives are passionate as well, but it's it's just such a needless yeah. loss, you know? Yeah, and, and look, there's... Uh, oh. There's a lot better detectives than I am in uh, all the police forces across across the country. I just hope this doesn't make people think, oh, well, look what happened to that bloke because he uh, he put out that he cared because you should care if you're investigating a crime. And uh, there, there are some great detectives out there. And, you know, I, I've got a profile just because of the jobs that I was heading up. But the, the jobs I was heading up, there was a team working with me, beside me the whole way through. And there's some great people out there. But... I just hope organisations don't drown people that want to go that little bit above and beyond because I, I, don't, I don't think we should be in the police, and especially in homicide, striving for mediocrity. I think we, yeah, we really should be trying to make a difference. Yeah, and I wouldn't think there were ever enough great detectives that we can afford to be throwing them away. Yeah, look, I, I had the experience, you know, investigating homicides for 25 years. I still had the energy and I still had the passion and uh, I get on with my life outside the cops. I have a, a great life outside the cops, but that was my passion and I, I felt that I could still contribute greatly and uh, that's the, uh, the shame of the situation I found myself in. Can I ask you the obvious question about the William Tyrrell investigation? I think it's obvious, but it's, it's probably my naive faith in the police. But do you think you know what happened, but you just have not been able to sort of put the brief together? That's always my assumption in these situations. I always feel like, oh, I bet he knows. I bet he yeah. knows and he just hasn't been able to pull it together yet. I, I have case theories and there's no one, no one person that I can say definitively, I know this person was involved in William's abduction or or has knowledge of it. But, uh, yeah, I led the investigation for four years. It would be a bit stupid of me to say I've got no idea because, obviously, there, there's lines of inquiry. These lines of inquiry, and at the time of my removal, they were to be explored at inquest, and uh, that was part of the process I was involved in right up until the dramatic day that I was told not to speak to anyone about the William Tyrrell matter again including the victim's family, which I felt that, that just seemed uh, inconceivable. But, look, there are, and I, I say case theories because they are only theories and they need to be tested quite rightly in courts or through the, uh, through the inquest. I'm also mindful that there's a current inquest and I don't want to usurp the authority of the uh, coroner that's overseeing the matter. So perhaps the clearest or strongest I can say is, look, I've got some ideas I can't say with certainty, but and certainly more work needs to be done, and I'm sure it is being done. I'm, I'm, I don't think there's a police officer that doesn't want to see the William Tyrrell matter solved. It's just that it's going to be a tough one. If your appeal is successful, could you go back to the cops? Would you go back? <laughs> Look, I, I I can't see that I could go back. I don't think in the, uh, there, but uh, even if I could, after what's happened to me, as much as I love being a police officer, absolutely love it. It was rock my boat. I don't think I would go back because I couldn't trust that this wouldn't happen to me again. Yeah. And uh, 
I don't think I could, I'd be worried that my mere presence or involvement in the matter would hinder the investigation for the victims because the cops might take a chop at me. So I wouldn't have the confidence to uh, go back and work the way I need to work to uh, solve homicide. So long and the short of it, even if I could, I wouldn't go back. And I'm sad about that, but that's the reality. Could we talk about relationships that you develop with perpetrators? I know that that is not unheard of. It's not uncommon for you to develop relationships and keep them going and, and yeah. certainly in your book and in your podcast you've talked about an informant Mr X yep. who you've developed a relationship with uh, whether you like it or not <laughs> and so <laughs> interesting, interesting character yeah, yeah I'd love to know more about that <laughs> so can you talk to us about about those situations Charlie Vazina is one of our faves he's a beautiful former homicide detective here in Melbourne and he in particular developed quite a relationship with the man who was a bouncer and who had an altercation with cricket commentator David Hooks right. that led to, to David Hooks dying. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that man was acquitted on the manslaughter charge. But but Charlie had an ongoing sort of relationship with that young man and his dad. You know, that can happen, can't it? It, it can happen. And I think, and you've referenced uh, Charlie, who I've got the utmost respect for and haven't, haven't worked with him, but my observation of the way he's gone about his business, and, and it doesn't surprise me that a detective like that has formed a relationship because one of the things that... I've found, and uh, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people I know as retired detectives, but also on uh, on the podcast that uh, I'm doing, is about empathy. And speaking to Charlie, and I, I have spoken to him, something that struck me with Charlie is that he does have genuine empathy. And empathy leads to making that human connection between uh, offenders, victims, witnesses, informants. That is something that human nature, people want to make that connection. So... The longer you stay in the cops, and or this is what this has done to me, it stopped me being judgmental. Like I see in every bad person, there's a little bit of good, and in good people, there's a little bit of bad. And so if you have that open mind to the people you're speaking to, I think that comes across, and then they can uh, relate to you. So it doesn't surprise me, but... My relationships with informants and some of the big jobs that I've done, I've relied heavily on uh, criminal informants. And what we're talking there is someone with a criminal history that is assisting police. Their credibility starts at ground zero as far as I'm concerned. They've got to prove themselves to me like they're confirmed criminals and they're providing information. So I look at what's the motive, why are they providing this information, and that could be a lot of different reasons. It might be to um, get benefits on sentencing on a matter they might have before the court for monetary gain, and on the rare occasions, just because it's the right thing to do. You've got to look at their motive and then assess their evidence. I get the information from them. When I'm dealing with informants, the exchange of information is one way. They give me information, I don't give them information because that's because I don't trust them. But if they continue to show that the information they've provided, I give them a little bit more respect and that you get a relationship formed. But you've also got to be mindful and you've got to have a strong moral compass when dealing with informants because some of them can be quite charismatic and entertaining and yeah, (laughs) they're interesting people and you've got to make sure that you don't compromise yourself. And I'm comfortable in saying I've never compromised myself dealing with informants, but uh, I've solved a lot of cases because of my relationship with the informants. 
Yeah, it's funny you say that because I've spoken a lot about how it is that drug squads so often end up in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and, oftentimes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and oftentimes that sort of explanation is offered to me about how charismatic the informants are, how much fun they they can be, you know. And before you know it, it's sort of things cross lines. And yeah, yeah you're, you're quite right. And uh, that's where you've always got to, even if you, they're entertaining you with outrageous stories, you've also always got to just think, okay, I'm the police officer, you're the informant, and make sure you keep that relationship clearly defined. Yeah, we're not friends. Yeah. I love your podcast. I love your book. And your work, your media work, has an energy that I haven't encountered with former police and, and their books and stuff. And now thinking about it, I think it's probably just because you're so young and that's the great tragedy of it. Like usually retired police are just not of your generation and it, it's, you shouldn't be writing this stuff yet and you shouldn't be reflecting on your career yet. And that's what's so fucked about it, to be honest. <laughs> that's that's a very, very good way of describing it. But um, <laughs> no, look, I, I, I think it is the case. Like if this didn't happen to me, I, I would have hung in there until I basically burnt myself out in policing and, and they've sort of policing's been ripped from me but I've got all this energy and I want to channel it in, in some areas. So thanks very much for those comments. That's a very nice of you to say. Listening to your podcast, listening to you talk to other coppers is just so energetic and so exciting and I still get this youthful exuberance and excitement about being a copper. I love that. And I think yes, I want to be in the stick ups. <laughs> yeah, well I, I look if anything, I think sitting down and listening to uh, the police reflecting back on their careers, there is tragedy, there's sadness, and people you know, always give compliments to the job that police do. But there is also the fun side of it. And some people might call it the black comedy or the way that we look at things. But I, I look back and uh, I don't want to be pissed off and just angry at the cops. Like, I love my time in the cops and uh, I love talking to cops. I love the, the world of policing and, yeah, making those comments to me i really appreciate it that thanks very much because uh, i enjoy your stuff as well and uh, you seem to extract that side of policing out understanding what, what it's all about oh great thank you well congratulations it's it's good it's great that you've found this niche for yourself where you can still enjoy the cops in a different way yeah it's been three years now since Gary Jubilant's determination paid off for Mark and Faye Leveson and he led the team that found the remains of their son Matthew in Sydney's Royal National Park. They'd been looking for a decade by then. I caught up with them today to check in and also to ask them about the bond they share with Gary Jubilant. He, he's stolen a part of our heart. Well, we consider him family now. You know, how long did it take you to develop this relationship with him? Well, when we first met him, when we went in the meeting, uh, and I, I was excited that Gary was there for the fact of his reputation. And, you know, we sat down with the three of them and talked. And then he was going on a 12-month sabbatical. And for that 12 months, we didn't get much back at all. We emailed and phoned and there was no real communication there and when he came back he rang us and we had another meeting with him and then things happened with the false uh the false false lead and that and he was really approachable and you know we just started to think well we're going to get somewhere with this and of course he didn't trust us as first which is understandable and that, that he sort of just told us little bits of pieces what was going on, but he was, you know, he, he thought that they were on the right trail. He was dogged. He was like a dog with a bone, and he just took off with that 
from there. But he's just, he, his communication skills, he was always professional as well, but he had the empathy there as well. And you felt that, you know, he said we could contact him anytime, which we tried not to because, you know, they've got to have their time off too. But, you know, we'd have, information and there was just great communication between us and he pulled together a really good team who um, we felt relaxed with if that's the word we knew that we're in good hands it was just a matter of getting that person to open up as to what happened to Maddie. Unfortunately you were pretty experienced by that stage in dealing with the police weren't you I mean how many years had it been since Maddie had disappeared when you started working with Gary like that? Oh, it was, I think it was in 2013. Yeah. Six years? Six years, yeah. Six years of not knowing and even when he started, still not knowing. But at least we had the sense that somebody was the last listening to us and going to do something about it because we were just knocking on doors and every time we had information, we'd go down to Miranda and they didn't want to know. They'd fob you off. They wouldn't even bother replying half the time. That's what I said to him. I said, you're that guy. Whenever you're dealing with a, a huge institution, you know, and you just get ping-ponged around everywhere, you just need that one person who stops and says, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for you and I'm going to do what needs to be done for you. And he was that guy, right? He was that guy, yeah, ex- exactly. And, you know, nothing was ever a problem to him. He was down at the, the site with us most of the time. He was doing whatever, getting his hands dirty. He wasn't just sitting back on his laurels, uh, even though he, he had Scott in charge and Scott did a fantastic job and the others, Damien and John. And, you know, they all work well together and it just, you know, you needed somebody like Gary as well to, I don't know, because of his reputation, his, his experience, he, he pulled together a, a good team and it just made things a whole lot easier for us and the family. Now, do I remember correctly, did you take that fern home? Is that right? Yeah, we took the palm home, yeah. You did? Yeah, yeah. we did. It's looking very sad. It's still in its pot. Mark's laughing here. Because <laughs> 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 I mean, it's brown, and it's, but it's still in the pot, and it hasn't deteriorated anymore. It hasn't got any greenery on it. But anyway, it's Maddie. That palm is Matt. He nourished that, that palm. And if it wasn't for Mitch and Scott, We'd be still looking for Maddie, and 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 of course Gary saying we'd had to go down there again and just cross hatch where they'd been. So when it went back to court, the um, Atkins defence couldn't say, well, you know, he, Maddie could be in between where the the buckets missed. That's right, because his steel was contingent upon him leading the police to Maddie. So um, yeah, the deal would have been off, right, if they hadn't found him. That's right. That's exactly right. And I mean, when um, Mitch and Scott, Scott Scott said to Mitch, take the palm out, and he did, well, you know, every we were packing up. And um, unbelievable. Yeah. I just, and I still remember when Gary called us over because they'd stopped before and they'd found echidna bones or something that wasn't, wasn't related. And um, I just said no. No, I, got, I couldn't believe it. And I think part of me was saying no because I didn't want it to be true because then I had to come to the realisation that he was dead, even though we knew he was dead. That finalised it. So what have the last couple of years been like for you guys? That was 10 years of your life, was, was looking for Maddie and dealing with the bureaucracy of New South Wales Police and all of that. And so to have that 
one thing that you asked Gary Jubilin for in the end when he asked you to narrow it down to one thing and you did and you said we want Maddie's remains, we want to bring him home and you achieved that. So that was three years ago now? Yeah, 31st of May 17. Yeah. Yeah. What's life been like since then? A roller coaster. You never get over it. I mean, it, it's it's good. We've got Maddie home. He's in in our dining room. The boys, uh, we didn't want to want him in the ground. We wanted him home with him. He'd spent long enough out there by himself. It's just been a roller coaster of emotions. Every time you hear about bones, even now, other remains being found, and we've got. A lot of good friends have got people missing. Your heart breaks for them as well, and it brings everything back to the fore for us, what we went through. You, you never get over it. You can't describe to people how it makes you feel, how it's devastated our lives. And in the same time, we feel lucky, if that's the word, that we've got him home, but it's still living hell. And then to turn around and the to do that to Gary, the detective, then in the middle of our case, they put him on the Tyrrell case and we're sort of thinking, I'm thinking selfishly, oh, my God, he's not going to put his efforts in into Maddie, which was far from the truth because he did. He did. He never, our case never neglected, wasn't neglected. But he just seems to be the guy that every time there was a hard case and they couldn't crack it, oh, we'll give it to Gary Jubilant. He can, he can handle it. He can do it. And so they were spreading him thin and then they turn around and do that to him. And there's so many conspiracy theories out there why why they did that to Gary, but the way we see it is it was just tall poppy syndrome, a witch hunt, jealousy, and it's a boys' club. Even, even to the fact they tried to bring us into it, bring Mark into it, because there was a recording of Mark's voice on Gary's phone. And you could see it in their eyes, rubbing their hands, oh, we've got him on this one, until Mark said, yeah, I knew he was, I, I, it was at my suggestion. And the, the look on their faces was classic. Thank you, Gary Jubilant, for joining us on the show. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. Made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.